0: Immersive cultural enrichment on board and on shore freshly prepared regional cuisine Viking sails the rivers of the world and takes travelers to the heart of iconic destinations discover more at viking.com learn how to plan invest and live smarter with the Raymond James for what it's worth podcast featuring insights from leading professionals you'll get the latest in wealth management market commentary and engaging research Listen today at RaymondJames.com slash podcast. I'm Jace Lakob, and you're listening to Masterpiece Studio. The brutality of life in the North African desert continues to weigh upon the British and Allied troops as they contend with scorching sun, sandstorms, and enemy fire. As the Germans close in on their location, the men pack up and head for Tobruk. Harry is sent to Cairo with a leg infection and Stan is left with no choice but to hitch a ride with the sapper unit.
1: Sir, wait, sir. Come on, come on.
2: Looks like we're your last ride out of here. Come and join a real regiment. Come on.
1: Go to hell. (coughs) Welcome to the British Indian Army.
0: In Manchester, Kasha discovers that Robina's houseguest, Sir James, is not quite who he says he is. After rifling through his things, Kasha discovers that Sir James is an undercover MI5 agent on a special mission, and he just might be her ticket out of domestic life at Chase Manor. Kasia,
1: I'm not making any promises, but I may be able to
0: help you. To get back to Warsaw? No, I can't do that. Then you're wasting my time. I hear you have nightmares.
1: What has that got to do with you? I know you're not in tip-top shape mentally, yet I'm risking offering you something. The least you can do is listen to what it is before discounting it out of hand.
0: Back in a North African desert field hospital, Harry is on the mend, and as chance would have it, Lois is stationed at this very same hospital. They each take comfort in seeing a familiar face, but the war has taken a toll on both of them, each in different ways. What are you doing in Egypt?
1: I could ask you the same thing.
0: I was on a mission, I was injured.
1: Me too.
2: That's how I ended up here.
1: I don't understand.
2: is fine, by the way. She's with your mother
1: and Kasha.
0: I still don't understand why you're here. This week, director Minu Gore joins us to discuss how she balanced the big, dramatic moments of battle with the small, tender moments of love, longing, and domesticity. This week, we are joined by World on Fire director Minu Gore. Welcome.
2: Hello. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for talking with us. In your career, you seem to relish the opportunity to switch between genres, showing an affinity for tackling such diverse styles as feminist noir or Bollywood-style dramas. What attracted you to directing an episode of World on Fire in particular?
2: When uh, I got the script, uh, the first thing that struck me, and I had already seen season one, uh, so I was aware that this was not your typical World War II drama, in as much that it wasn't just like a patriotic piece about uh, one country versus another. I think it was so much more a human drama and trying to tell stories about just everyday normal people in their everyday lives and how the war impacted those lives. And I think that's rare in the telling of World War II stories. So if there was ever going to be a... war story that I would love to tell it would be this and the fact that Pete who's the creator of the show has this way of really empathetically bringing very nuanced way of looking into masculinity and the stories of women so there's this whole aspect of a gendered way of looking at the war, and how both men and women were impacted by it. So all of that really just drew me in. I think the aspects to this writing that are very beautiful and rare uh, when when we access World War II stories.
0: It's interesting you say that, because, as you say, you know, it, World on Fire might be about also those sort of big moments. There are, in the first episode, you direct certainly explosions and attacks, but it does also capture those small, quiet moments of futility or despair, or even domesticity. I mean, how do you then approach directing a series that veers so wildly between extremes like that?
2: I think that's a really good point you make, that there is the those big moments of the battles and of the combat. And then there are really tender moments, which are just, you know, about two individuals love or longing or desire or you know, fragility, fear, whatever, you know, all of that in those very difficult times that people were living through. And in this, you know, there are multiple storylines taking place in multiple countries like Germany, France, and then we are in Manchester, but then we are in the uh, North African desert where the war is taking place. So you're kind of moving between different storylines. So I think one of the biggest challenges in directing this piece was always about making sure that one is able to go through that arc of every character's journey across these different episodes and I think that's always actually more difficult in some ways than doing the big war combat moments. I think it's always more challenging to keep a track on the human story on the emotion of that individual character and their journey and to never lose thread of that when very very spectacular things are happening on screen. Of course, you know, it's the actors who who were also in in season one. They sort of carried that burden very well of their individual character journeys and arcs.
0: You yourself, as you said, were a fan of series one of World on Fire when it went out uh, in the UK in 2019. Since then, there's been a, a global pandemic, war in Ukraine, upheaval around the world. How would you describe the experience of stepping into the director's chair to helm a project that feels particularly timely after these events?
2: Yeah, I think there's a great responsibility, I think, when we tell war stories. And that becomes even greater in a time such as this. And that is why the way that the writer and creator Pete uh, approaches it is so beautiful, because I think he's always aware of being able to bring in the voice that is most marginal, you know, into the center while telling the story. And that's then uh, series one as well. The, the very stories that he chooses to tell are not stories that you would necessarily think about or themes that you would think about when you think about World War II. The fact that series one opens with the war in Poland, not that much spoken about aspect of World War Two, not that much spoken about country uh, when we think about World War Two. So I think that responsibility of knowing that there are smaller stories that get submerged, you know, in larger narratives. And I think what's important is that when we do tell war stories, we are able to excavate those stories that sort of get erased in the larger narratives to tell those smaller stories, because that is where the sort of human element of war is, you know, and and not to lose track of that, that the real repercussions of war are on people, right? They're not on countries or more abstract things. They are about individual people and the cost that that war and that violence has on individual lives.
0: You mentioned the concept of erasure. I mean, there there have been no shortage of films and television projects that have told the story of World War Two. But roughly two and a half million South Asians served in the British Indian Army in World War II. Why are we only now seeing their stories on screen in an English language project?
2: That is shocking, isn't it? I mean, uh, and it's not just World War II, it's World War I as well. Uh, The number of people from uh, South Asia and, in fact, other countries um, in other parts of Asia and Africa who would have served in these wars, and the number of them who would have never returned home again is huge, huge. And that it doesn't form part of mainstream storytelling. Think about all the your favorite World War II films. And, and I, I would be very surprised that even if like 1% or 2% of them had any visual representation of people from these countries who served the war whether it was World War I or Two, So that is a definite and clear erasure. And one of the things that I was obviously very, very moved by was the story of the officer in the Indian Army in season two. And I hope that uh, this is now going to be opening up to that narrative, to that, because it's a very poignant part of history, because these were people who came to very far away lands, to very, very different climates and in very hard conditions, very far away from home, and fought these wars. Their contribution to the war is completely not far from being celebrated, is completely erased.
0: The character you're referencing, of course, is Rajib, played masterfully by Ahad Razamir uh, this season. Uh, to me, one of the biggest breakout characters of the show as a whole. Uh, what do you feel Rajib brings to the narrative of World on Fire?
2: I think Rajib is a very, very wonderfully nuanced character because he's a real hero. He's a real war hero in the sense that he takes his duty as a soldier extremely seriously. And yet where he comes from, you know, India and undivided India, uh, he he is at that very moment in history, actually waging a fight for independence from the colonial forces. Uh, So he's fighting for the British Empire at a time when back home, uh, there's a very, very different fight happening. And so that conflict is a very wonderfully sort of um, written conflict for the character. And I think it's a, a Rajib sort of dilemma and him realizing, you know, just what we were talking about, the erasure, in a sense, in a very individual way, uh, realizing that despite his men and him so heroically fighting this war, in a sense, they do not have the same stature respect that other soldiers have in the army and that sort of understanding and how that understanding sort of shakes his entire sort of belief in what he's doing in the moment
0: it's especially heartbreaking i think to to watch rajib's trajectory this season knowing that he he believes he in fighting for britain he's fighting for india i think it's just beautifully done i want to take a a little bit of a step back you occupy a very unique place in cinema perhaps we could say you're sitting in the director's chair at a crossroads between Pakistan, India, and Britain. Uh, and there's an affinity for Pakistani drama in India and Bollywood excess in Pakistan. But a lot of these projects are banned on either side of the border. How do you so deftly navigate those cultural schisms?
2: I'm not sure I'd do it deftly. <laughs> <laughs> for, for starters, I think uh, the obstacles are very real for all artists trying to work with each other, work across industries, tell stories that encompass both worlds. I think anybody who wants to or tries to do that, there will always be difficulties and obstacles, but at the same time, there are a huge number of artists and musicians and filmmakers who are doing that. And I've had associations with producers and ex- executives who have endeavoured to tell these stories. So for instance, uh, one of my last series that I did, which was uh, a feminist noir, was such a project. And it uh, was uh, with this producer who who repeatedly tries to do these stories, which are across India and Pakistan and international industries. So yeah, that's, that's it. I've, I've had I've been lucky to find colleagues and associates who are helming projects like that and and, and join and collaborate with them.
0: Noir was, of course, an outgrowth of the, the cynicism that followed in the wake of World War II. Do you think it's perhaps logical then as a director to search out a project that allows you to recreate the very conditions that led to Noir?
2: Uh, yeah, that's a very, very good point. I I, I didn't see it as the logical next step from noir to take actually to take a step back and do a world war two drama but that's a good point that's all i can say but the, the whole sort of you know project to do a feminist noir and desi noir uh was was just that i find it surprising with noir being one of my favorite genres uh but i also find it very annoying and irritating that it has such a sort of strong male gaze in as much as you only can encounter the character of the femme fatale, which most noirs have through the male character and their voiceover. So I was kind of just endeavouring to turn noir on its head and see what it would be like to do it from the perspective of the femme fatale. And what it would do to the morality of the story. And of course, what it would do is it totally makes the story about the femme fatale and then, uh, you know, uh, it, it changes everything, doesn't it? So in I think what's similar to World on Fire is about what I previously said about choosing a marg- marginal uh, approach to stories that have been told before. It's just about shifting your position and seeing it from another place. And I think World on Fire does that. It just shifts the way we have looked at these stories and sees it from down below there, not countries and nations and battles and events, but just down there with people. And by just doing that, it changes the way that we perceive World War
0: II stories. Before this next question, a brief word from our sponsors. The Great Lakes, the Arctic and Antarctica, iconic destinations around the world, Viking offers opportunities for discovery with a shore excursion in every port. Learn more at Viking.com. Coming up next on Masterpiece on PBS, the premiere of Nolly begins March 17th at 9pm Eastern, 8pm Central, followed by the premiere of Alice and Jack at 10pm Eastern, 9pm Central. Episode three, your first directed episode this season, begins in Libya. There are fast cuts. There's a lot of action. Harry falls over wounded and in need of hospital. The camera shakes with the reverberation of missiles. And we cut to a castle in Brandenburg, Germany, and it's calm and lush. And these German girls go through their synchronized exercise regimen. What were you looking to say with this juxtaposition of images?
2: Best way I can put it, there is a meanwhile right in World War <laughs> two stories, because the war is taking place across space and time, isn't it? The fact that World on Fire always takes you somewhere else as well, you know, that you may not think of, North not Africa, you know, for instance, right? Or uh, the, as you said, the story about the Indian sappers, etc. So I think that that juxtaposition is about that element of meanwhile in another sort of time and space, right? And, and I think that kind of cutting is there across this episode and even the other episode that I directed, because that's kind of the structure of the storytelling.
0: I love that, though. Meanwhile, uh, there is a, <laughs> a, a sort of balletic energy to the scene of the, the Lebensborn girls, the closest this season comes to a, a full musical number, if you will. Uh, did you relish the opportunity to direct this sequence?
2: Yes. I mean, originally, if I remember correctly, I mean, I think maybe there wasn't that element on the lawns. But I had been watching some archival videos of these girls, and I don't recall the exact words, but it was about how there was this great investment in beauty and health for these women, these young women. And there was this gymnastics and very, very sort of beautiful dance and gymnastics sort of regime that all of these girls were uh, involved in. And when you saw those videos, the form of it was quite hypnotic to watch. Hmm. And and I think what was important is that it's important that when you tell a story, you try to tell it from the point Of view and the morality of whose story it is, right? Uh, Because what I'm trying to say here is that there is a character who's obviously drawn to this, is being seduced by this, right? And therefore, we have to see that seduction and we have to see what that attraction is. Uh, Because if we don't see it from her point of view, then we'll never understand her story, right? So I think it was an attempt to to see it from this character, Marga's lens, really.
0: I love it. You shot the early domestic scenes at the Chase household through doorways, lending these scenes the feel of a Romana clay. Was this an intentional shot composition adding to the sense of claustrophobia that these very unlikely housemates are feeling?
2: Yes, yes, exactly that, really. The women characters have this sense of being trapped, right? in each one of their situations. So there is, one of the characters is trapped because she'd much rather fight, you know, and she has all this, from season one, she has all this uh, trauma and anger and she wants to fight, but she's placed into this domestic situation.
0: I fought in the resistance in Warsaw. I belong there where I can make a difference, get me home.
1: I'm afraid that's not in my gift.
2: I belong in Poland.
1: It's out of the question.
2: The other woman, uh, she's a new mother, and, you know, she's, she's grappling with her losses, uh, which are huge. I'm not saying I'm not feeling, like, lost, but I am fighting back. And this, me being here, that is part of me fighting back.
0: I'm
1: so sorry. You must have felt so lonely. And the
2: mother, the uh, the matriarch in this entire situation, is just having to deal with all this mess, you know, which is not her creation, you know, and she's being uh, she's being pushed into situations which make her very very uncomfortable. Please, don't be so It's a trait of your mother's,
1: and I really wish you would indulge. I
0: don't know much about babies, but uh, logical reasoning might work, I suppose. I'm
1: past caring, to be honest.
0: You having a sherry?
1: Uh, no, it's a little late for me. Thank you.
2: So I was trying to get that energy, you know, of what these characters are feeling, and I use, as you said, doorways, windows, but also like shadows. You know, like um, I think there's this, uh, you know, there are these sort of grills on the on the windows, and they sh- throw these sort of grilled shadows, you know, on people, and that literally looks like a prison, you know, when you when you look look at it. So exactly what you said was what I was attempting to do.
0: The examination scene feels straight out of a, a body horror film. It's it's full of, and again, we're going to use that word shadows, but also menace, surgical instruments, eerie angles. How did you approach these scenes with Marga with her naivete and stark contrast to these rather ominous surroundings?
2: Yeah, I think when I first uh, read the story of Marga, I was again, you know, I was very, very intrigued by how we had approached, you see, one is used to stories about how the bodies of women become a site in, you know, in times of war, right? We we have read, read about that. We we know about that aspect. But this was such a different story telling you about how women and their bodies get used in war, but but from a very different perspective. So, so what I I was trying to do is that I I realised that this story was about a young girl. I wanted to present a very embodied reality and use that element of which what she's being put through to tell her story, to feel that aspect of see it from Marga's point of view everything from her point of view and and feel it as much as possible and and the only word i can really use is embodied so there's a lot of her hands and there's a lot of her uh you know her eyes and her you know different different aspects there's also use of her breath in many places so just to be with her point of view as as much as possible that's that's what i was attempting and therefore when when there is that moment of vulnerability and extreme trauma then what happens is disembodied if if that makes sense to you you know so so to see it through the lens of embodied and disembodied and and create a language through that that's what I was attempting to do and it it it, it sort of it rests on the work of many 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 other wonderful uh women artists and filmmakers who have, thought through all of this. And I was accessing all that.
0: The British Indian Army finds itself under intense fire. There's a lot of sand. The scene is washed with yellows. The truck blows up. Those yellows are then contrasted with the blue that saturates the scenes in Romain V prison. How do you approach the use of color as a director? Is it something that you consciously use?
2: Yeah, color palettes are very, very important for me, and especially uh, in World on Fire, where you're very quickly uh, moving between worlds, right? So you have to contrast these worlds, and the one of the way that you do it is through the color palette. So I kind of try to lean into uh, whatever the writer has already put in. I think there are little codes there that you can, you know, get into, and then from there, you know, uh, unpack what the intention is. Really, uh, what this what the world is supposed to look like and and that's how i approach it
0: the final scene in the desert is the most intense of this entire episode and and some might argue of the entire season Uh, rajib stan and bruno collapse at the edge of an allied camp and the white men rush to stan and bruno rather than to rajib him help him he is a british officer you're supposed to go to him
1: You go to him! You're supposed to go to him! You go to him!
0: As a South Asian director yourself, what was it like helming this sequence, one that so painfully, brutally depicts the institutionalized racism at play here?
2: It still moves me as you're even talking about it. Because I think what is lovely about the scene is that you see an individual's heartbreak. That is the most poignant way to tell such a big story of, as you said, institutionalized racism. That the only way to tell it is to see one human being's heartbreak. And that's what I saw in that moment. This is a person who desperately hangs on to an idea or a view of the world Uh, You know, when he says in another scene, he says this line that the value of a life is the value of a life is the value of a life. And what he's really saying through that line is that everybody is equal and nobody's life is less than the others. And it's this sort of almost desperate belief he has about the goodness and the equality and all the all the great values that he fights for, we fight for as human beings. And in that one moment, uh, you When I say you see his heartbreak, he knows that it's not true. The value of a life is not the value of a life or not the value. And in fact, despite the fact that Bruno is an enemy and the natural thing would be for his side to go to him, to the enemy and save him rather than the officer from the British Indian Army.
0: You grew up watching movies with your parents, sometimes three or four a <laughs> night. Uh, your mother, I believe, was an ardent fan of horror and art house cinema. Did you inherit those tastes from her?
2: My mother is a proper cinephile in the sense that she she sort of not only consumes cinema, but she consumes the whole universe. If you know what I mean, like the fandom, <laughs> and you know, if you want to know trivia. She didn't know it, you know, about the making of the film and, you know, the actors and everything. So, uh, so yeah, I think I sort of uh, grew up with all of that excitement uh, about cinema and I love horror and it's definitely what I want to be doing very soon.
0: You did a war project, you did a Christie, you're looking to do horror. What is, what is next for you?
2: I already told you that there's something about Wanting to do stories or genres that have been done across decades, but bringing to it something different, bringing to it a lens or a way of seeing it that hasn't been done before. So that's my that's my larger project, and and I try to do that with whatever is presented to me. It uh, uh, I, I always try to think about how can I infuse this with a voice or do a telling of this that we haven't quite seen before. So it's familiar, but it's also uh, bringing in a new perspective, that it, which is what I'd like to do with whatever, whatever comes up next, really, even if it's horror.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait to see what's next. Minugor. thank you so very much.
2: Thank you so much. It's been lovely chatting.
0: And we're back with World on Fire historical advisor Richard Overy to unpack some historical topics from episodes two and three. Marga informs on Goethe, betraying her best friend. While it's since become a trope in films and television programs about fascism, how common an occurrence was naming names? Was selling someone out sometimes the only way to save your own skin? It was, I'm afraid. Denunciation, telling on your neighbors
1: reporting to the authorities was much more widespread, I think, than we might have expected. And, you know, what happens in World on Fire is not, I think, surprising. Margaret wants to protect herself. She wants to protect her parents. She wants to do what she wants to do. And, you know, the problem is her friend is too young and too naive to understand the risks she's running.
0: So James turns up at Robina Chase's rather lovely estate, were military personnel often billeted at country homes around England during the war and was it considered an obligation during wartime to have officers or even soldiers billeted in your home even for the upper class
1: yeah I mean it was widespread yeah. quite comfortable country homes were taken over and and uh, you know a wing would be left to the family to live in uh until the until the war was over i think I think him uh, well on fire it's it's unusual I think to have uh, mi5 officer stationed at, at a senior mi5 officer stationed you know, in an ordinary house. in fact it's a, one of those things in world on fire which I think is you know just on the edge of what's possible. but otherwise yes it, you know it was uh, it was where it was needed not every house of course was requisitioned but where it was needed just
0: yes. it was an obligation yes you couldn't say no. The British Army is beset by a series of sandstorms in the desert. One member of the squad heads out with some bog roll or toilet paper and ends up dying in the sand, essentially drowning. Uh, while war is dangerous, was this a common way to die for the British Army fighting in North Africa?
1: Uh, well, not a common way, no, but it, it happened, yeah. I mean, it, that is based on memoirs and records from the from war in North Africa. You had to be very careful in the sandstorm. I mean, yet another evidence that this is a you know dangerous and unpredictable environment in which to be fighting. You know, if that didn't get you, something else might get you. Uh, Scorpions, for example, which were widespread. Uh, Snakes. I mean, most soldiers did survive with generally a high level of discomfort. But yes, accidents like this happen all the time.
0: What was the role of the British Indian Army in terms of the war effort, All of the, the sappers that we see here, and, and what sort of role did they play? And was anyone in Britain even aware of their existence?
1: Well, they were aware, but it has to be said that the, the British were quite ruthless in recruiting non-British manpower to fight their battles. By 1941, only a quarter of the troops in, in North Africa were British. Indians, Australians, later New Zealanders, later Poles as well, uh, were all recruited into uh, the the battleground. They'd fought there before in the First World War too, so there was a kind of continuity, if you like, between the two conflicts. But the Indian Army became the largest volunteer army in in the war. Two million Indians volunteering to uh, fight for Britain. But as you see in World on Fire, they fight for Britain, but they're also fighting for India. And There's a strong sense among many of the rank-and-file Indian soldiers during the war. Yes, they would fight uh, Britain's war, but they wanted to be repaid at the end with Indian independence. And that comes through quite strongly, I think, in the, uh, in the drama.
0: It does given how widespread that was then, how many South Asians actually did participate in both world wars, why do you feel the contributions of South Asians have been largely ignored or deliberately forgotten from history books and or film or television portrayals of, of World War II specifically?
1: Well, I mean, there's a lot more written about it now. I mean, historians have done a lot in the last 25 years in uh, highlighting the contribution of the uh, wider empire. And so, if you're a, you know, a Second World War enthusiast, you will have read something now about this. But for a long time, it wasn't important to the British narrative. What was important was the Battle of Britain, the Blitz, surviving, then D-Day, the things that you could identify clearly with with Britain rather than with the wider empire. And that kind of amnesia has you know, dominated the memory of the war in the last eighty years, and it shouldn't, because the British were heavily reliant on troops from other countries, not British troops. They were heavily reliant on Indians, New Zealanders, Canadians, South Africans, Australians. um, And it's a contribution which has to be built in. I think when we talk now about the British war effort, we really need to start talking always about the British Empire war effort. That's what it was. —
0: Lois joins the Auxiliary Territorial Service, or ATS, the Women's Branch of the British Army what was the role of the ATS during the war and, and what sort of duties did its members perform beyond just clerking?
1: Well, they did all the kinds of things they could do except combat. You know, they did secretarial work, they did radio work, uh, they worked with, could work with radar. Some of them were posted to Bletchley Park, to the Code and Cipher School. They engaged with intelligence work. They drove lorries, ambulances. I mean, a, a wide range of activities that freed men for doing other
0: things. Marga is examined by a Lebensborn doctor in this episode who appears to be using phrenology as a way of deciding whether she's worthy to serve as a broodmare. Was there a Nazi belief in phrenology and other pseudosciences? Well, there
1: was, yes. I mean, they constructed the most elaborate means to try and work out somebody's racial categorization and they had forms which were then filled out. And if you look at them, they're quite bizarre. It's got you know all kinds of things about shape of the head, length of the nose, you know, width of the brow, etc., colour of the hair, because you know they, they were persuaded that it, you could use all these kinds of measurements to work out somebody's racial value. And actually, the list that they compiled, you know, the, on the race cards as they were called, you know, would have a list. One list would have all the characteristics we think of as Aryan man. And the last list would have all the characteristics that you would think of as the you know, Nazi stereotypical Jew. Um, so it served a particular
0: purpose. Richard Overy, thank you so very much. My pleasure. Next time, the British Army makes it to Tobruk, but the internal tension continues to grow.
1: Pa) Your men will lay a tactical minefield in order to draw in the tanks for artillery to strike.
2: Sir, if I may. The enemy is already familiar with the tank trap. Standard defense formation might be more advisable.
1: Thank you, Paul. You'll lay a tactical minefield as per orders.
0: Sir. Next week, don't miss actor Ahad Razamir, who plays the fearless and compassionate second lieutenant leading the British Indian Army's sapper unit. Masterpiece Studio is hosted by me, Jace Lacobb, produced by Jack Pombriant, and edited by Robin Bissett. Paul Stevens is our sound designer. The executive producer for Masterpiece is Suzanne Simpson. Sponsors for Masterpiece on PBS are Viking Cruises, Raymond James, and the Masterpiece Trust.